Hi, this is Stephanie Phillips, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. You know, being in Philadelphia when the Beatles hit in the early 60s, there was an actual backlash. A backlash against the Beatles? There were actual radio stations that would not play them. They wouldn't play I Want to Hold Your Hand. The, The backlash had to do with with dancing, with teenage dancing. Kids couldn't dance to the Beatles. And so there was this weird, like, um, negativity toward the Beatles' early stuff. That's incredible. Today's guest is one half of one of popular music's most successful duos of all time. As a member of the best-selling Hall of Notes, he has played guitar alongside Daryl Hall for decades, co-writing such songs as Sarah Smile, She's Gone, and Out of Touch, as well as You Make My Dreams, I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, Man Eater, and Adult Education. He's also sung lead vocals on several more hit singles, including How Does It Feel To Be Back and the Hall & Oates classic cover version of The Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Lovin' Feeling. In 2014, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Hall & Oates. His memoir, Change of Seasons, was published in 2017. In recent years, Oates has pursued solo work in Americana and Roots music. In 2018, he released his LP, Arkansas, and in September 2020, he released Live in Nashville, the culmination of his Arkansas Musical Roots project. Welcome, John Oates. What do you remember most about growing up with the music of the 1960s? You know, that you have to remember that, that era in American American popular music, it was all, it was very regional. You know, you had distinct American regional sounds, you know, the Philadelphia sound, the, the obviously the Motown, the Detroit sound, the, the sound that was coming out of Chicago, the sound Stax Volt that was consolidation of radio station networks. Um, and the, um, the kind of the corporate, uh, the corporate uh, playlist that was basically, you know, imposed and enforced on the DJs, you know, back in that, in that same regional era, many DJs had their own personalities. They had their own, their own style, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the Jerry Blavitt, the Geeter with the heater and the, you know, high school Rooney McVadio zoo, you know, high lit in Philadelphia and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they played a certain type of music and you could, you could tune into a DJ and you would get their kind of musical point of view, so to speak. Uh, once playlists became, um, 
you know, they, they were basically being dictated by a corporate boardroom and the DJs were not free to play whatever they wanted. They had to play what was on the corporate playlist. And I think that's, that's when it started. And there you were, of course, sort of at the apex, right, John, between this regionalism and the eventual consolidation of radio networks, etc. When did you, though, when did you make your first discovery of music and the guitar? Well, my discovery of the guitar. Well, <laughs> when I was a little kid, um, I had musical, you know, I, w- I was, a, I began to sing as a little kid, literally the moment I could talk. And my mom would drop me out there and I'd sing these little, you know, nursery rhymes and things like that. Um, when I was about six, five or six, I can't remember. Um, she wanted to give me music lessons. The only music teacher in this little Pennsylvania town where I was growing up was a guy who taught accordion. Uh, and his name was Wayne Barry. He was actually a very well-known accordion player. And um, so she took me there and with a little student accordion. And quite frankly, I, I hated it. And I remember taking a lesson and I remember coming home, putting the accordion in the closet and never touching it again until the next week. And I'd go to the lesson. And after, I think, two or three lessons, he said, you know, are you not, you know, aren't you practicing? And I said, no, I really don't want to do this. And, um, you know, so got, we got back to the house and my mom said, well, why don't you want to play the accordion? I said, no, I said, I want to play the guitar like Elvis. So that's kind of what, um, what pushed me toward the guitar, even though I didn't realize at the time that Elvis actually wasn't playing, but that's not neither here nor there. Um, yeah, he looked cool. And, uh, so anyway, I, I got a guitar from, uh, actually, I, I actually have the guitar of my first guitar, um, that was in the basement of my, one of my best friend's house. My, his father was a woodworker and he had this old beat up guitar that he had tried to fix and it really wasn't very good. And I tried to play it and I tried to take a lesson on it and the strings were, you know, half an inch off the neck and my little fingers couldn't press on it. So we ended up getting another guitar and um, then I started taking lessons at six and never looked back from there. So then was there a point early on when you began to develop, say, a particular affinity for one guitar, one make of guitar over another? To me, to me, the guitars that I play are like um, tools, you know, they're, you know, you don't, you don't try to hammer a nail with a screwdriver you know you uh you use what's appropriate for the sound you're looking for at the moment and you know what you're doing okay fair enough but guitars aren't just mere tools for you right you you are a collector oh no i got lots of guitars (laughs) so here you are you're growing up in philadelphia you got a guitar of your very own how was it that you discovered the beatles well my beetle origin story is probably extremely um different from, I think, the average person. Um, And I don't want to set myself, uh, you know, in a different place or not. But, you know, being in Philadelphia, when the Beatles hit in the early 60s, there was an actual backlash in Philadelphia to the Beatles. A backlash against the Beatles? There were actual radio stations that would not play them. They wouldn't play I Want to Hold Your Hand and Please Please Me in the early stuff. Um, the, The backlash had to do with with dancing, with teenage dancing, you know, Philadelphia being the home of, uh, of Dick Clark and American Bandstand and kind of like, if you can't dance to it, it's no good kind of thing. And people, kids couldn't dance to the Beatles. And so there was this weird, like, um, negativity toward the Beatles early stuff. That's just incredible. Being a, you know, being a teenager in Philadelphia, I was 
right along with them. I, I was listening to The Temptations and, uh, you know, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles and Otis Redding and Sam and Dave. And uh, to me, the Beatles, you know, they didn't really mean that much initially. And it wasn't until later on when their recordings began to get more um, more interesting and more um, they, they got into their production side of things with, uh, you know, with Rubber Soul. And then, of course, you know, on from there um, that I that's when I started actually listening. Well, if we're talking about the Beatles' studio years, what album of theirs was it that set your heart aflutter? Well, you know, I record. I, I recall getting into Abbey Road in a big way because I realized what they were starting to do was they were using the the recording studio as a as a as an artistic instrument, um, which is really you know between the Beatles and Brian Wilson on Pet Sounds, they were the they were the pioneers of of making you know taking the the technology and the uh potential of what you could do in a recording studio and be making it part and parcel of the music they were making it was no longer just the recording studio wasn't just no longer just a, a room that you walked into to record your songs it became uh, a, a artistic um you know it became an artistic element in the actual record-making process. And that's when I began to get really into it. Of course, if you're talking about the Beatles and their studio years, uh, I think we would both agree, right, that it's impossible to overlook George Martin's contribution. How do you see his work? It just seems absolutely monumental to me. I think he grew with them, though. I, without their creativity and their adventurousness and the fact that they were they, they were uh, the type of, of songwriters and artists who wanted to push the envelope. And, you know, and I, and I, I mean, I'm from what I understand, you know, Paul, John and Paul were very much influenced by, by Brian Wilson's pet sounds um, because Brian Wilson was doing something very innovative. And I think they, he kind of threw down the gauntlet in terms of, uh, you know, studio uh, techniques. And, and I think they wanted to, you know, jump on that bandwagon. So, um, but George Martin was there to be their, um, you know, to be their rock, so to speak, their, their musical rock. You know, he was a, he was classically trained, you know, uh, obviously fluent in, in a lot of different styles. And once they, they, you know, that once they, they arrived at that place in their career where they wanted to experiment and do something more experimental, he was there to, to make it happen. Um, you know, with these incredible string arrangements and the use of uh, unusual instruments and and very uh, just innovative ways of of making their vision come true. Uh, so there's no doubt that he that he he was uh, he was part and parcel of of the music they made during that period of time. And I don't think they could have done what they did without it. Were you and Daryl Hall able to enjoy a similar kind of mentorship from a producer, from someone you could look up to who? who really helped guide your career? Oh, well, it, it, luckily for us, it happened very early on. We, you know, we got signed to Atlantic Records in 72 uh, because the great uh, producer, Arif Martin, wanted to produce us. That was, you know, his endorsement was all we, the, the label needed. Um, we did our first album with him, and it was just kind of getting our feet wet with him, uh, with our relationship with him, and also, you know, making our first album. But really on the second album, Abandoned Luncheonette, was when it, I, I call that the perfect storm of creativity for us because we had these, this incredible, you know, 
um, incredibly gifted and, uh, you know, experienced producer in a reef, very similar to what the Beatles had with George Martin. And then he surrounded us with the greatest studio musicians in New York at the time. And of course, you know, provided these incredible arrangements and incredible you know, just sound musical guidance. But at the same time, he didn't really get in the way. He, he allowed us to, to experiment. He allowed us to try and, and, you know, see where we could take things. Um, so I think, you know, very similar, I think, to the Beatles relationship with George Martin was Daryl and I, uh, our relationship with Arif Martin. But even at that early juncture in your career, right, Arif Martin wouldn't give you free reign. He wouldn't just let you go hog wild. Am I correct? Of course, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's what, uh, you know, people who really have their act together are able to do that. The, you know, the, he, he used to do, it was kind of a funny thing. He, he would kind of let us, you know, mess around. We tried this and let's try that. You know, we were like puppy dogs, you know, we were just all over the place and, you know, let's try this. Let's bring in an oboe. Let's bring in a, you know, a five string electric violin, you know, and he would let us go to a certain point. And then he would always make this kind of funny joke. He would say, and he had a Turkish accent, so he would always say, and now I put on my producer's cap, which meant it was time to listen to him. You've given us uh, a really interesting historical context for understanding Philadelphia during this period, the movement from regionalism to, to a national focus of the radio networks. How did this affect your career? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we did come up at a time when it was really... Um, you know, we, we had our, you know, one foot in the old in the old world of, of American pop music and one foot moving toward the future as the 70s, you know, evolved into the 80s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we you know, when Daryl and I made our first records uh, in 1967, 68, uh, we were we had two separate bands, two individual groups, but we, we were making a record at the same time. Uh, those records were only played in Philadelphia. Uh, there was totally a regional song that got played only on the Philadelphia R&B stations. So, yes, we were very aware of that and how that transition, you know, changed uh, over the years. We'll be right back with more from John Oates in just a moment, including the origin story for the duo that would change his life. We're back with John Oates. So tell me, did you hit it off right away with Daryl Hall? Was it a musical match made in heaven? Well, um, at first it didn't. Um, we, uh, you know, as I had mentioned before, we had, uh, he had a group called the Temptones. I had a group called the Masters in 1967. We had both uh, independently made singles, which were being played on Philadelphia radio. And we were aware of each other, but we had not met. Um, we met at a teenage dance uh, where there was a gang fight and we kind of never got a chance to perform. We went and hit, hit the street and kind of just trying to get out of there basically um and then we were both going to temple university and i started seeing him around he started seeing me around and at the time it was during the vietnam war um two of the guys in my band got drafted so my band effectively fell apart uh his group was falling apart and i joined him his group for a very short time as a guitar player and then that group uh, fell apart and he and i just kind of became friends and we started hanging out. Uh, we were not working together. We had no plans to work together. Um, he was doing studio work and working in a bar band. I was doing, I was playing in folk clubs and uh, playing with a blues band and um, just scuffling around Philadelphia. And uh, after I graduated from college in 1970, I decided I wanted to go to Europe and backpack around Europe. 
So I took off and sublet my uh, little apartment in Philadelphia to Daryl's sister and her boyfriend. And I took off for four months. And when I came back from Europe, I came back with, you know, basically no money and a backpack and a guitar. And I went to my little apartment and there was a padlock on the door because uh, Daryl's sister didn't pay the rent. So I uh, had nowhere to go. So I walked down the street to Daryl's house, knocked on the door and said, hey, man, um, your sister didn't pay the rent. I can't get in my apartment. He goes, oh, that's cool. Just stay here. And it was, you know, it was that kind of, those kind of days. And um, so I have to, owe, I guess I owe it to Kathy, Daryl's uh, sister, for getting us together, really. Because uh, by me moving into his little house and sleeping upstairs in the upstairs uh, pull-out couch, that's where he had his piano. And so he'd come up to play the piano. I'd be up there, you know, with my guitar. And next thing you know, we started writing songs. So in a lot of ways, then, it was about proximity and sheer good fortune, right? Yeah, it just worked out that way. And all of this is playing out, of course, against this backdrop of the Philadelphia sound, right? And this place that we've been describing really throughout our conversation. Absolutely. And especially in the 60s when I was you know, a teenager growing up there. Yeah, I had this unique, uh, uh, I was really, it was a unique place and time. I could go to the Uptown Theater, which was part of the the, the, the Chitlin circuit, you know, where, the, you know, the Apollo in New York, the Howard Theater in D.C. and the Apollo in Philly, which were the, um, you know, the stops on, on the R&B and the soul uh, tours. And I saw everyone from, you know, all the great soul classics, you know, James Brown, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, The Temps, um, you know, Smokey Robinson, you know, Delphonics, you know on and on and then at the same time i'd go to the the coffee houses like the main point the second fret or i'd go to the philadelphia folk festival and see these incredible um re newly rediscovered roots and uh authentic blues and folk performers who were being re reintroduced to the up in the northeast to the college kids and stuff so it was just this incredible melting pot of american roots music that I uh, grew up absorbing uh, at a time when I was very impressionable. And, and that's, you know, and I think it's why I, I don't really see, I don't really categorize and I don't try to pigeonhole uh, music into various uh, styles and genres. To me, it's all this, you know, this incredible, you know, uh, combination of, of what came from the, the deep South and, and evolved through, you know, up into the North to, uh, and, and evolved into rock and roll. So it, it all really is, is one thing to me. So how does that rich tapestry then figure into your current explorations of bluegrass and other sort of roots styles of music? Well, I, I, I wrote a quote that I'm actually quite proud of, so I'm going to repeat myself. Um, bluegrass, uh, it's like salted in bluegrass, dipped in Delta blues and something like that. Uh, what happened was with the Arkansas album, and by the way, the Arkansas album is really the, 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 the precursor to this Live in Nashville project. So what happened was I, I didn't really intend to make the Arkansas album. There was no real goal in mind, but I love being in the recording studio. And I wanted to record some Mississippi John Hurt songs because he's always been a hero of mine. And I know his entire catalog. And I went in the recording studio, recorded about two or three tracks of just me, acoustic guitar, vocal. And, um, you know, I sat back and listened and I was like, yeah, it's cool. I said, but, you know, interestingly enough, I, I've never heard these songs played with a band because they're always associated, you know, in the classic style of the, you know, the 
the solitary blues man, you know, with his, the voice and his guitar. And I thought, I wonder if I put together a really unique band, I wonder what these songs would sound like. So I put together a very eclectic uh, combination of uh, Sam Bush on mandolin, uh, Guthrie Trap on electric guitar, Steve Mackey on bass, Josh Day on drums, Russ Paul on pedal steel, who, who doesn't play, he plays pedal steel like a, He's a very innovative pedal steel player. He plays with Dan Auerbach, among other people. Uh, and this really incredible cello genius named Nathaniel Smith, who plays with Casey Musgraves. And um, I put them all together in a room, not really knowing what was going to happen. And the first track we cut was a Mississippi John Hurt song. And I remember my engineer saying to me, he goes, John, I don't know what this is, but just keep doing it because it's really cool and different. And I went, wow, okay. And so that was really what happened. And that's how the album started. It was, it just happened because of the sound of the band playing these, these old time, this old time music. And um, so as the album began to evolve, I realized that, that it had the potential to have a lot more wider scope than just um, Mississippi John Hurt. So I began to do research and I, I started looking into the music that he might have listened to during his early recording career in 1929 when he was uh, on OK Records. And I said, well, I wonder what was in the jukeboxes in Mississippi in those days. And so I did some research and found some playlists of jukeboxes. I, I started looking. I said, well, what was the first uh, big hit record at the early, in the early days of radio, in the early days of the phonograph machine? And I discovered, you know, a song, uh, Anytime, that sold a million copies in 1923. And I went, wait a minute. I said, this is a, this is a, I'm, it's, it's a snapshot of the beginning, the, the, the early, earliest days of American popular music. Because I think a lot of people may, might wrongly assume that American popular music started with rock and roll. And of course it didn't, um, you know. I mean, I was aware of the big bands and swing because my parents were of the World War II generation. And um, so I started digging. And the more I got into it, the more excited I got about shining a light on this era of music that's largely forgotten. And um, this band brought it to life in a more contemporary way. And of course, you know, I also was thinking about music with you know, through the lens of my experience and who I am today, not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to recreate the past. I'm trying to use the, this amazing uh, legacy of American music as a jumping off point. And that's how the album, you know, came to be. Well, your enthusiasm for bluegrass music and certainly for your Arkansas project is absolutely contagious. Let's, uh, let's give a quick listen to that old classic, Anytime, recorded by John Oates with the Good Road Band. <laughs> sure is a great tribute to your vision and bringing off this Arkansas project so spectacularly. 
Oh yeah, there was nothing pre-planned. <laughs> nothing I do is pre-planned. I'd love to take the credit for um, for having that kind of vision, but you know, it just uh, is what it is. Well, it certainly comes off like a very well thought out uh, recording. Um, you got to give it that. Well, I took, uh, I took I took great pains to um, really make sure that the keys that I was singing in were uh, suitable for the music that, that I was making and for the range of my voice. And I wanted to bring something else out of my voice that I had never done before. An or, you know, or, organic kind of um, or an earthy quality that I was able to do. And these songs provided the vehicle for me to be able to do that. So there was, you know, there was a lot of, um, like I said, there was a lot of modern sensibility imposed on those old songs and I think that's what makes the, the album unique. I think that points to the eternal problem in our our age of mass technology and digitalism, right? Trying to find new music uh, in this great sea of ones and zeros. It's a, an entire universe of music floating around out there. In fact, I think that maybe the, the biggest challenge is, is sifting through all the clutter to get to various things. Uh, there's just so much out there. Well, with the Arkansas Project, you've definitely given us uh, a new starting point. Oh, there's so much. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I, I'm very much involved in the Americana uh, roots music, you know, uh, movement or style. Um, that's where I, that's the sweet spot for me. Although I love, I love some of the pop stuff that's happening. You know, I, I love the craftsmanship of the modern pop records. They're, you know, they're really well-crafted and really innovative, uh, the hip hop stuff and, and, you know, even just the regular pop stuff. I mean, I'm listening to the Black Pumas. They're, they're amazing. Uh, they're kind of retro, but yet they've got this new sensibility. I'm just doing, uh, I just did four songs for a new movie called Gringa that's coming out. Um, and, uh, one is a hit I did. I collaborated with a hip hop artist from South Carolina and another one uh, with a, an amazing female vocalist from Mexico City. Uh, we did a duet together. So I'm really doing um, some really unique stuff. And uh, the Internet, the ability to communicate and and to work and collaborate via the Internet now has opened up the, some really unique possibilities. Absolutely. And once again, um, we find ourselves thinking about the geography of American roots music and how it develops. I think a, a, a commonly overlooked um, geographic aspect of it, and without trying to get too academic about this, but Philadelphia is one of the first northern cities after the Civil War. So you had a very, very large influx of Southern uh, African American uh, culture and uh, people coming from the Deep South, you know, escaping the South, trying to get to the North. And the first place they landed was Philadelphia, you know. Um, so you, you have this very unusual, you know, it's a northern city with a lot of English classical uh, culture and, uh, you know, the sophisticated European aspect of, of that side of things, whether it's in art or music or, or whatever. And then you have this uh, much more rural uh you know, Southern influx that I don't think a lot of people, you know, understand about Philadelphia. And the same thing happened in Detroit when, you know, when with the auto industry, when, you know, the birth of the auto industry, when so many African-American families migrated up to uh, to Detroit for jobs and things. And then you have this incredible music that comes out. But, you know, so, so you know, for me, all this music and this the great legacy of American music is, owes so much to the Deep South. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's really the touchstone for me for everything. Which, of course, in its own way, brings us back 
to where we started the Beatles as another one of those touchstones. Am I right? I mean, of course. Who were the Beatles listening to? The Everly Brothers, <laughs> Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you know. I mean, the same thing, really, you know. Now that we've made our way back to the Beatles in this roundabout manner, perhaps we could speculate a little bit. Say, for example, you're stuck on a desert island. What would be your Beatles song, the one you'd want to have with you f- potentially forever? Well, should I just pick the longest one since I'm going to be on this island for a while? Well, here at Everything Fab Four, we'd like to leave that in the hands of our guests who know best about their desert island experience. So you just take it away. <laughs> I don't. I think that'd be a poor criteria for choosing the song. So, you know, I, I, I oh, how do you pick a Beatles song? There's like thousands of them. I remember seeing Paul McCartney at Bonnaroo back in 2013. And I was out there with Jim James, and we were in the audience watching the show. And I, after a while, I just started laughing. And I just started, I remember turning to him and I go, geez, too bad this guy doesn't have any good songs to play. <laughs> it was it was just so crazy. Um, well, to answer your question, I'm, I'm going to just pick some obscure song. They're all fantastic. Um, I'm just going to say Norwegian Wood. There's something really mysterious and sexy about that song. That is definitely a winning choice, I gotta say. I mean, Norwegian Wood, a song that, with lyrics that double back on themselves, would provide you with just endless, endless hours of pleasure if, as you wonder if you're ever going to be, you know, saved from that desert island. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's really, it's very, very uh, cool. And I think that's one of the songs that I think really, where they realized, hey, we can do more than just write pop songs. Going back to your remark about Paul McCartney and seeing him live, uh, especially in recent years, every show is an embarrassment of riches. Where do you even begin to write up that set list? Well, I know, you know, he's he's got a great band and I give him a lot of credit for still being out there and uh, still wanting to tour and things like that. You know, it's it's a. He's a he's a true um, true uh, artist. Well, to be fair, whenever Hall and Oates go out on tour, right? You guys must have a hell of a chore in trying to figure out what you're going to include uh, on your set list on the, any given night. Yeah, we have the same problem, but not not quite as extensive as the Beatles. But we definitely have the same really amazing problems. We have so many hits that we basically have to play our hits. Uh, for the audience, because it's, it's the professional, you know, kind of thing to do. But at the same time, we have an amazing legacy of album tracks that I, I think are very, some of them very innovative and very interesting and very, you know, uh, unique. And uh, we don't always get to, to, to dig into that side of our, our musical legacy. That has got to be a difficult balance to strike. Yeah, the hardcore fans always want to hear the deep tracks, but uh you know, we've got uh, got a lot of people out there who, you know, a lot of young young people who are turned on to us because they've heard the, uh, you know, you make my dreams come true uh, in a TV commercial or a movie or whatever. So, uh, you know, we need to you need to try to satisfy everybody and you do the best you can. I know it's a bit of a departure, but I've just got to ask, what was it like to live next door to the gonzo journalist himself, Hunter S. Thompson? He, um, he was my neighbor in Colorado for 20 years. And um, he, uh, he was very, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, the, 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 the character, the Hunter Thompson character, the one that's so well known, you know, the, the cigarette holder, the slouch hat, the, the aviators, you know, 
that that whole thing is you know that was him for sure, but it was also a character that he affected. And um, when you got him one on one, and he wasn't that, he could be a real Southern gentleman. You know, he was from Kentucky, and if he liked you, you know, he could be really really cordial. Um, but at the same time, he loved being Hunter Thompson. So, so, you know, I had, we had some very funny things, you know, when he later in his life, actually closer to the end of his life, when he broke his hip and his leg and he was in a cast for a long time, I have a picture of my son signing his cast. And, um, while, while my son signed, my son was about nine, I guess at the time, my son signing his cast. He's got he's got a big glass of whiskey in his hand, and I think at the table there's some there's some blow on the table. But uh, I've got a picture of my son signing his cast, which is I think pretty funny. Very funny indeed. Thank you for being here, John Oates. And until next time, this is Everything Fab Four. is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab 4 theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.